If you have a Bible, take it out and find John 12. This morning we're going to look at John 12, verse 20 to 26. So we're just pressing on in our study of the Gospel of John. And I thought I might remind you of where we've been and where we're headed in the Gospel of John. We started John uh, as a Sunday morning sermon series, January 12, 2019. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday. And so last Sunday on Palm Sunday, we actually came to the original Palm Sunday in the Gospel of John. Next Easter, Lord willing, we'll come to the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And again, Lord willing, uh, we'll be here together in this room celebrating Easter uh, corporately in one location. We're hoping for that and praying for that. Uh, and hopefully it's, it's sooner than next Easter before we're back together. That's the timeline of where we've been and where we're headed in John. Here's the timeline of the last week of Jesus' life, which is the part of the story that we've come to in John's gospel. On Friday, Jesus came to Bethany. Remember, he came, at least everyone else thought, late. Lazarus was dead and had already been buried. He raised Lazarus from the dead. On Saturday, probably in the evening, there was a dinner with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and others. Sunday was Palm Sunday. Jesus rode uh, a donkey into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. We talked about that last week. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Jesus spent time in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, particularly in the temple. Uh, he clears the temple. He teaches in the temple. There's arguments. There's debates. There's all sorts of stuff happening. And Jesus also delivers during this period the Olivet Discourse. Thursday is the Passover. He's arrested and he's tried. Friday is the crucifixion and the burial. Our story takes place on the Monday after Palm Sunday. So we're in the last week of Jesus's life. I, I told you this last week, all four gospels tell the story of Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, only John tells the story of the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. And there's a connection in John's mind between the triumphal entry and how that story ended and the story that we're going to look at this morning. So you can see it clearly in your Bible. Last week we ended with John 12, verse 19. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. John picks up the story while the Pharisees are grumbling about the fact that so many people have gone after Jesus. Verse 20, John celebrates the fact that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So John is giving us an example of some of the people who were in the area in Jerusalem who wanted to see Jesus. They're an example of, quote-unquote, the world going after Jesus. John says that these Greeks, we don't know if they were men or women or men and women or adults and children. He just says a group of Greeks. These Greeks were in Jerusalem to worship at the feast. That's his wording, worship at the feast. What he means is they're there to celebrate the Passover, they're not there on a, a tourism trip. They're not there on a family vacation. They're there to celebrate what God had done for the Hebrew people in bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And it's interesting that they were there to do that because John says they were Greeks. More than likely, he doesn't mean they were Jews who spoke 
Greek, that would have been true of almost all of the Jews. What he means is that ethnically they were Greek. They weren't Hebrews by ethnicity, meaning they had converted to the Jewish faith, faith to the Hebrew faith at some point in time, and they had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, there's a few interesting pieces of this story I want to acknowledge. We're not going to talk about them as we work through the text, but I do want to acknowledge these things. One, it's interesting that the Greeks came to Philip. They didn't want to see Philip. They wanted to see Jesus. But in coming to see Jesus, they stop and they talk to Philip first. Maybe it's because Philip had a Greek name. Philippos was a Greek name. It means lover of horses. Maybe it's because the father of Alexander the Great was named Philip, Philip of Macedon. Maybe they looked at Jesus and his disciples and they said, there's a guy with a name like ours. Maybe he understands our history because of of who he's named after. And they approach Philip. And they say, sir, we want to see, we wish to see Jesus. Another interesting piece of this story is that Philip told Andrew about the Greeks. They didn't want to see Andrew. They wanted to see Jesus. And they came to Philip first. And Philip, rather than just going directly to Jesus, goes to Andrew. We know these two guys were from the same hometown. We're not exactly sure why Philip didn't just take them straight to Jesus. Maybe, this is speculation, but maybe he knew Andrew had a history of bringing people to meet Jesus. And maybe Philip wasn't comfortable doing that at this point in time. Maybe he knew Andrew was the one who brought Peter to meet Jesus. Maybe he remembered back when Jesus fed the crowd, it was Andrew who brought the boy with a small lunch to Jesus. For whatever reason, Philip doesn't go straight to Jesus. He goes to Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus. One last piece of trivia here. It's interesting that John sort of leaves the story hanging. He doesn't ever tell us if the Greeks got to meet Jesus. We don't read about a conversation. We don't read about a meeting. We don't read about any sort of interaction. Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and they say, hey, there are some Greeks who want to see you. And Jesus responds, but he doesn't really respond about setting up a meeting or arranging a conversation. Bible scholars look at this and they speculate that it's almost like Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and they say, these men want to meet you. These Greeks want to meet you. It's almost like Jesus takes it as a sign or a signal. Because when he hears that they've come, he immediately says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I don't know exactly how this worked. I don't know how to make sense of it. Maybe there was some sort of understanding Jesus as the Messiah had that Gentiles came and they sought him out at his birth and that these Gentiles were coming again at the end of his life and seeking him out again. But however it played out, Jesus took this news. The Greeks are here to see you as some sort of sign and some sort of signal. All of those questions aside, the big idea is crystal clear. Here it is. Jesus was glorified in his death, resurrection, and ascension. We're going to talk about this passage, but the heart of what we're going to talk about really is verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the heart of what we're talking about this morning. Jesus was glorified in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. So look in your Bible. We'll read the text together. 
John 12, beginning in verse 20. The scripture says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the word of God for us this morning. We're going to pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the opportunity, even if we can't meet in this room, we thank you for the opportunity to be together, to sing together, to study your word together. And Lord, we simply pray this morning that as we think about this short, simple story, that we would see the glory of Jesus revealed in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And Father, we pray at the outset this morning, and as we talk about this story, as we read this story, as we work through this story, that those who are watching and listening at home, Father, we pray that there would be people this morning who would come to know and experience eternal life. Father, that they would turn from sin and that they would turn to Jesus. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm like many of you, one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is pick up my cell phone and see what my notifications are. I think that's pretty standard uh, for most of us these days. On Monday, the first thing I did was turn off my alarm. The second thing I did was see a text message from my dad. And my dad had texted me Monday morning to remind me that Monday was the day the Kansas Jayhawks were supposed to be playing in the national championship game in the NCAA tournament. Now, some of you, if you've listened the last couple of weeks or you've been around me the last couple of weeks, you're tired of hearing about the Kansas Jayhawks. You have had enough. You think I need to find a new sermon illustration or a new talking point. I would just say to you, I'm going through a grieving process, and this is therapeutic for me to talk about it and to share my emotions. And so I got this text. Today was the day we should have been playing for a national championship, he said. Nobody knows who they could have, would have been playing, but all Jayhawk fans feel very confident we would have been in the national championship game Monday night. Kansas Jayhawk fans have been talking about this as our sixth national championship. We've won five, and we're going to go ahead and claim this one as the sixth. And there's been talk, should we hang a banner? Should we not hang a banner? Should we make our own trophy? Should we not make a trophy? Jayhawk fans will forever remember... 2020 as the championship with an asterisk, the championship that really didn't happen. And we'll brag about it because that's what sports fans do. We'll remind everyone we were the almost undisputed number one team at the end of the year in all the polls. 
And all the other teams and all the other fans will remind us they call it March Madness for a reason because you have no idea what would have happened in the tournament. And Kansas fans know that. We've had many untimely exits from the tournament. But it didn't happen this year, and so we're just going to go ahead and claim it. Everyone else will roll their eyes. Everyone else will say, no, you only get to claim 2008. You only get to claim 1982. You only get to claim the titles in the 50s and the 20s. You don't get to claim 2020. If you're a Cowboys fan, you live in Texas, you understand what I'm talking about. Cowboys fans are stuck in the miserable situation of bragging and boasting about champions, championships that occurred a dadgum generation ago. And we talk about 96, and we talk about uh, 94, and we talk about 93, and we say, man, those were the glory days with Troy and Michael and Emmett and that defense and Jimmy and everything was so great. Nobody's boasting or bragging about the last 20-plus years of mediocrity. Nobody celebrates that. We just pray and hope that it would come to a swift end. So when it comes to sports... The things that we celebrate are championships, banners, titles, trophies. We don't celebrate losses. We don't replay defeats. We don't brag about untimely exits from the NCAA tournament. We don't brag about all the times we almost made the playoffs. When it comes to Christianity, it's strange that Christians boast or brag or celebrate the cross. It was a loss. It was dark. It was the darkest of all days. It was the ugliest of all days. It was the most wicked act that had ever occurred in all of human history. Jesus the Messiah was crucified at the hands of wicked, jealous, spiteful, vengeful, ungodly men. And yet as Christians, we look back on that and we celebrate it. We take a cross and we wear it on our necklace. We take a cross and we hang it on our wall at home. We take a cross and we share it on our social media pages. Why? It's because we know that the cross is not the end of the story. And it's because we know that that apparent defeat actually resulted in victory, that Good Friday led to Easter Sunday. In this passage, John 12, you will not find the word cross, you will not find the word crucifixion, you will not read the word burial, tomb, Easter, resurrection, or ascension. But that's what the whole story is about. Just a short passage, verse 20 to 26. It's all about the cross. It's all about Easter Sunday. And this morning we're going to look at this short story and we're going to ask a couple of questions. What is John teaching us about Jesus and what is he teaching us about salvation? So number one, what does John want us to know about Jesus? He wants us to know, first of all, that Jesus' hour had finally come. His hour had finally come. Now, I don't know about your house, but in our house we have kids ranging from 5 up to 13. One of the things that we like to do is count down days. 
We don't have the, the app on our phone that lets you count down the days to a certain event, but we just watch the calendar, and it may be a birthday, whoever's birthday is next. It may be a, a holiday like Christmas. It may be a family vacation, but we like to count down the days, and we like to sit around and say, how many more days until this? And you know, kids, once they get excited about something, they can't quit asking. And how many times in our house has it happened that someone will say, hey, Dad, hey, Mom, how many more days until something? And we say, well, 43 more days. You throw this big number out there and you see this look on their face and it is at the one moment complete discouragement and despair. 43 days, 17 more days, 8 more days. How is it ever going to get here? But in addition to despair, you also see a building anticipation because that number keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And if you're reading through the Gospel of John, you've noticed something similar. It's not really a countdown to a specific number, but throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about his hour. And up to this point, everything Jesus has been saying about his hour or his time is not now. So I'll just give you a few of the verses. You can look these up on your own. John 2, it's the wedding in Cana, and Mary comes to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. Could you do something? And the first thing Jesus says is, woman, my hour has not yet come. You see the same thing in John 7. Jesus says to his brothers, they want him to go up to this feast in Jerusalem, and he says to them, my time has not yet come. It's not my time. You see it in John 7, 30, and John 8, 20. Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying to people, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And you've been hearing this all the way through John, and there's anticipation building. When is it going to come? Not now. Not now. It's not time now. Then one day, Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there are some Greeks who would like to see you. And of all the moments, that's the moment when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. I don't know exactly what it is about that moment I don't know what the sign or the signal was or how Jesus knew in that moment, but he knew the hour has come. The time has come. He knows there will be no home journey to Galilee. He knows he will not leave Jerusalem alive. And he knows it, and he says the hour has come. Secondly, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. One of the things I've tried to do in this time of quarantine and social distancing is to make uh, videos, daily videos, where I check in with you guys. One of the videos I made this last week had Corey and Hunter in it. And there's a screenshot of the video we made in my office. And in this video, one of the things we talked about uh, were all of the nicknames that have been stuck 
to our beloved youth pastor. And maybe sharp-dressed man ought to be added to that list because he looks really great in his suit and tie this morning. None of you are here to see it, but he looks really, really sharp. And we talked about all these nicknames. Uh, The nickname Big Cat. And I didn't know that was a nickname we gave him, but it's a nickname someone else had given him before. And uh, he has received that nickname twice independently, so that means something. We call him Hubcap because he drove the the church bus to Arlington on a mission trip and the hubcaps got stolen. Uh, We call him Pookie Bear, one of my favorite nicknames for Hunter. We call him Asterisk. I talked about an asterisk earlier. We call him Asterisk because the year he won fantasy football in our church league, he wasn't actually there for the draft And so we were left to assume that his wife Cricket was the one actually drafting his team. So we put an asterisk by his name on the trophy, on the championship. So he's got all of these names. He's a man of a thousand names. I want you to understand Jesus had a lot of nicknames. He had a lot of titles. Some of them were given from friends, some from enemies. Some of them were given from love and faith. Some of them given from hatred and spite. People looked at Jesus and they called him son of God, son of David. Some looked at him and called him Beelzebub. You're casting out demons by Satan himself. Some looked at him and mocked him as being illegitimate. They knew the stories about Mary and Joseph and they teased him about this. They, they prodded him about this. Some called him Christ, Messiah, Many called him rabbi. We could go on and on and on with the list. Here's my point. When Jesus referred to himself, his favorite nickname for himself, not what other people called him, but what Jesus called himself was son of man. Over and over and over again, he calls himself the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And he's taking that nickname, most Bible scholars will tell you, from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he, the one like a son of man, he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Over and over and over again, Jesus, in talking about himself, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And everyone's mind, every Hebrew mind, every Jewish mind that had read the Old Testament goes back to the book of Daniel and says he's talking about Daniel 7. And they all made a connection in their mind. When Jesus said Son of Man, they made a connection because of Daniel 7 between the Son of Man and glory. That's our third truth. Jesus will be glorified. He will be glorified. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The glory of Jesus is a theme that runs throughout John. You can trace it on your own and find those verses. But it comes up here. Jesus, the Son of Man, will be glorified. Now let me just state the obvious. Daniel says that there will be a Son of Man who receives glory and power and dominion 
in a kingdom that lasts forever. Here comes Jesus, and over and over and over again, he says, I am the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man. And here in John 12, Jesus looks at his closest friends, his closest followers, and he says, the hour, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everybody listening to Jesus and tracking with the thought that he's laying out there, that he's the Son of Man, thinking about Daniel 7, is now anticipating a political revolution. We're going to get a new king. There's going to be a new kingdom established. It's going to last forever and ever and ever. That means, in their minds, they're thinking the Romans are going to be kicked out. The Sadducees are going to be disposed. The Pharisees are not going to be influential. We'll have new leadership in Jerusalem. They're looking for revolution. What they get is a crucifixion. Verse 24, Jesus follows it up as he talks about his glory and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, John's telling us, Jesus had to die. It was a necessity, not optional. This was no flip a coin and we could go left or we could go right. We could call play A or we could call an audible. He had to die. Notice the word in verse 24, unless. If you like to make notes in your Bible, maybe that's a word you underline. Unless. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. What Jesus is saying to people who understood agriculture is, if the grain of wheat doesn't fall off and die, nothing comes from it. There's no crop, there's no plant, there's no harvest. But if that grain of wheat falls to the earth and it dies and it goes into the ground and it's watered and it germinates and a plant grows, there's a harvest and something comes from it. If it doesn't die, there's no harvest. If it dies and falls to the earth, there's a harvest. The wheat has to die, and Jesus is telling his followers, I have to die. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're looking for revolution. What they're about to get is crucifixion. There's a quote from Edward Clink that ties all this together. Clink is a Bible scholar, and Clink says this, The expression of glory is not with a crown, but with the cross. This is the grand irony of the gospel. The hour of the glorification of the Son of Man is made manifest on the cross. It's not going to be a political revolution. It's going to be an excruciating crucifixion. His hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and what that means is he has to die. Why did he have to die? Why did we have to include this in the plan of salvation? Why couldn't the Father simply just wave his hand and forgive Everyone. Why couldn't there be a, a magic word or an incantation of some kind that could just make it be? 
Why couldn't God just sort of take all of our mess and sweep it under the the rug of heaven and forget about it and pretend like it had never happened? Why would Jesus say, unless the grain of wheat falls and dies, nothing comes of it? Why would he teach his disciples that it was necessary that he be crucified and buried and rise from the dead? Number one, that was the plan from eternity past. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit from before the foundation of the world had a plan to redeem fallen humanity who hadn't even fallen yet or been created yet. There was a plan to save a people. That was the plan. Secondly, it was the hour for which Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, to die and to rise again from the dead. Thirdly, this is how Jesus would receive glory. And it's the irony of the gospel. It's the the upside-down kingdom where Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head and everyone thinks, you're the son of man, you'll get glory by running out the Romans. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the son of man and I will get glory, but I'll do it by dying in shame for your sins on a cross. That's the last reason that it had to happen. The last reason that Jesus had to die is because God is holy and we are not. We're sinful people. God cannot, as a holy God, sweep our sin under the rug of heaven and pretend it never happened. He's not going to just wave a magic wand and say, oh, your sin is not that big of a deal. Let's just forget about it and let bygones be bygones. Justice had to be served. That means if we're going to live Jesus had to die. That's the heart of what John's telling us in this gospel. This is not just a story about Jesus performing signs. We've talked about that throughout our study of John. John said these signs have been written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But he didn't just write a book to say Jesus did a lot of neat miracles. He didn't write this book just to say here's a a speech Jesus gave in Bethany, and here's a speech Jesus gave in Jerusalem, and here's a thing that Jesus said in Cana. That's not why he wrote the book. John wrote the book to tell the story of Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. It's a story about Jesus. And when you begin to see the Gospel of John as a story about Jesus, then you see really good news because you understand that the Jesus story includes us. Jesus' death and resurrection secure our salvation. It brings us to this question, what does John want us to know about salvation? Three simple ideas. Number one, we must die to self in order to receive eternal life. There's got to be a death on our part, a a death to self. Jesus describes it like this in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. The tighter your grip on your own life and your own prosperity and your own well-being, the more you guarantee that you will lose all of it. Jesus says, if you hate your life in this world, and he's speaking with hyperbole, but if you hate your life in this world, you keep it for eternal life. He's talking about dying to self. This is a biblical way of talking about repentance, changing your mind about who God is, changing your mind about your sin, 
agreeing with God about his holiness in your sin and turning from an old way of life to walk in newness of life. It's turning from sin and turning to Jesus. That's dying to self. And Jesus says, if you want eternal life, you've got to die to self. Secondly, those who die to self follow Jesus and serve Jesus. All those who die to self follow Jesus and serve Jesus. Verse 26, anyone who serves me must follow me. Look, when you die to self, you enter into a new relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. It is not simply a matter of securing your destination for eternity, but it changes your relationship with Jesus now so that you become a follower and you become a servant. There's a reason when you read the epistles in the New Testament, the letters that come after the gospels in the New Testament, that so many of the authors describe themselves, they introduce themselves as a slave of Jesus, a servant of Jesus. Their relationship changed when they died to self. They're following. They're serving. Thirdly, lastly, eternal life includes the presence of Jesus. Presence. And we don't mean P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, like you get a bunch of great stuff, but we mean the presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. C-E, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter is not, there's one Sunday a year where all the pews will be filled and all the ties will be pulled up tight And all the hats and dresses will look super, super nice. And everyone will have a great Sunday morning in a room like this. That's not the hope of an Easter Sunday. The hope of Easter Sunday is that when you die to self, when you turn from sin, and you put your faith in Jesus, you believe the good news about Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven where he's sitting on the throne of a kingdom that will never, ever, ever pass away. When you do that, you die to sin, turn from sin, and believe the good news about Jesus, this is what you get. Jesus. He's the pearl of great price. Heaven is not what we're chasing after. Jesus is who we're chasing after. And Jesus says it like this, if anyone serves me, He must follow me. And here's the hope. Here's the encouragement. This is the treasure that we would gladly give up everything in the world to obtain. Where I am, there will my servant be also. We know the presence of Jesus. We know it now through the indwelling of his spirit, and we know it forever in eternity with him. That's what we want you to celebrate this morning. That's what we want you to find hope in this morning. And to that end, we're going to pray.